Support for this podcast and the following message come from Lagunitas Brewing Company, challenging the status quo and crafting stories along the way. Featuring a wide range of innovative craft brews and non-alcoholic options, it's good to have friends. Learn more at Lagunitas.com. Hello, hello. I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show about what's going on in culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. I've been a fan of my guest today for nearly half my life. Anna DeVere Smith is an actress, journalist, and playwright. Many of you may have seen her as Rainbow's mom on Blackish. <laughs> Andre, join us. Let me warm that heart with the light from within. I hate when my heart's warm. Or Nancy from the West Wing. Let's attack. Ooh. Kumar, let's recommend to the president that we attack. Why? Because I've had it. But her most powerful work, in my opinion, lives in the theater, where she plays real-life people. Some man wrote me a letter to Mrs. Young. I saw your interview on television. As far as I'm concerned, you are an Anna is a pioneer of what's called verbatim theater, where the characters' lines come straight from interviews, transcripts, or recordings. But what does that look like? Basically, Anna interviews real people, selects their most powerful moments, then studies their words, speech patterns, and body language so that she can sort of become them. My grandfather had said when I was a girl, if you say a word often enough, it becomes you. Mm -hmm. I decided to really study how the people around me spoke. Hmm. I literally would walk up to people in the street of New York, this is in 1980, and say, I know an actor who looks like you. If you give me an hour of your time, I'll invite you to see yourself performed. The whole idea was to use this technique in a way to chase that which is not me. Most of her work is about some type of American catastrophe like her 1993 one-person show, Twilight Los Angeles. In it, she interviewed and then embodied more than 20 people whose lives were changed by the 1992 L.A. riots. Or there's her recent play, This Ghost of Slavery, which weaves slave diaries with interviews of people affected by the carceral system today. But through catastrophe and becoming all the people affected by it, she gets a unique glimpse into who and what our country is. I sat down with Anna in studio to find out what she's learned about America from becoming it. Anna DeVere Smith, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, my absolute pleasure, my absolute pleasure. You are a master at becoming others, and you can just as easily play Al Sharpton. The driver left the country. Nobody asked why would he run. If you are an accident, we have to go into civil court. Why is this man above the law? Or a young Jewish man in Brooklyn. And they asked me if Yanko Rosenbaum had had an autopsy. Because in the Jewish religion, you're not allowed to have an autopsy. Or a Korean convenience shop owner in Los Angeles. So nervous. Maybe I understand that uh, situation because I have a, uh, a similar situation in my store. But when you do it, it's not reductive or stereotyping. It feels like you're trying to do them justice. The first time I came across your work, you were 
embodying Studs Terkel. Hits the tip of an iceberg and bam, it went down. It went down and I came up. Wow, some century. He has a very specific way of talking and you captured it so accurately. It's so beautiful. In past interviews, you said that how someone says something or how they communicate is part of a core of who they are and that the style of their speech says everything. What did you mean by that? If the style of someone's way of speaking says everything, what does it say? I became interested in how the rhythm of speech could inform an idea of who someone was. First of all, I don't become anybody. People say that. I think of it as trying to make a jump. Hmm. I call it the broad jump towards the other. You don't make it. But you're in this other place, colleague of mine, Richard Schechner at NYU would talk about the idea of the not-not. Hmm. So I can't be you. So I'm not you, mm-hmm. and I'm not me, but I'm in this other place. I'm in this effort. And psychologically, what that is about, I think, is how I've decided to deal with my own sense of non-belongingness, having grown up in a segregated city. Hmm. If you really look at the whole thing I've been doing, it's to get close to my opposites and to get close to strangers as a way of dealing with the sense of estrangement. And technically... What I do is listen to speech the way that you might listen to music. So I don't just learn words, I learn utterances. And I, so I become acquainted with the, what I say is the song someone's singing. And a lot of my work has to do with disaster and catastrophe because yes. I'm a dramatist. So that's exactly when people become very interesting sonically because they're trying to make sense out of something that makes no sense in order to restore a sense of dignity. Mm. So while they're doing that in their speech, and then when I learn it, which, you know, is this very exacting enterprise, I'm coming closer to them becoming themselves, Hmm. to them trying to restore themselves. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm. I mean, this is all metaphor. I don't know if this is true. I've never talked to a psychiatrist or anyone about it. (laughs) But I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that in times of catastrophe, people want to share what's going on. They want to express themselves. They're shouting to be heard. And in those moments, you're not so much thinking about, well, how do I say this? Right. It's very active. It's not rehearsed. I talked to all kinds of people, right? Presidents of the United States. Right. Mayors, police chiefs. They end up being the least useful for what I do Hmm. because they speak what I call the haute couture of language, right? (laughs) So they have training, Mm -hmm. largely, not to say the wrong thing. Right. Or to find the exact right thing in order to elicit either following or to solve a problem, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in the people who are not trying to do that at all. They're really very present in trying to make sense of what just happened to them. And again, to restore not just a kind of sense, but a, to repair what just happened. Well, give me an example of where someone slipped from their more haute couture or rehearsed speech into the moment that you were like, oh, this is this is the thing that they're trying to do. Oh, yeah, me. that's a really great question. And as Studs would have said, I don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> when, you say, when you say it's a good question, it means you don't know the answer. I mean, maybe one person would be this man who I met in Baltimore, who I interviewed, who actually was the one who took the video, Kevin Moore, took the video of Freddie Gray being beaten. My gosh. And I was lucky to get that interview. We were driving down the street, and somebody who was with me 
who lived in Baltimore, I didn't at the time, said, hey, I think that's the guy who took the video. So we jumped out and, and we got him right. But mm -hmm. immediately with Kevin, he's speaking the kind of language that's interesting because he started the story with something like, you know, that he was in bed and somebody came to wake him up and said, man, he starts to perform it right away. Man, they tase him, they tase him. Woo! So, like, right away I'm interested. Right. Because there's just all these sounds already. Like right. that, woo! I mean, I'm already interested. Like, mm -hmm. sure, it's going to be great to get his rendition of the Freddie Gray beating. Of course. But it's also that he's speaking already in a musical way because he's changing his register. Mm. Already I know, oh, this is a person who is going to be designing a very beautiful composition of sounds and then I'm going to want to put him on stage. Hmm. Hmm. It's like going to see like a solo saxophone or trumpeter. That's right. You know, learning as a young actress, I was very intimidated by the idea of speaking Shakespeare mm -hmm. and realizing that one of the things he did was to create what I called, you know, a kind of jazz on words. And hmm. so in the beginning, before I knew that I'd be doing this interview project, I was very interested in how people would speak in a more jazz-like way, which is, in fact, what we do, unless we're speaking the haute couture of language. Right. We are improvising. You never know what you're going to say till you, you say it. You never know what you're going to say till right. you say it. Right. Coming up, Anna's theory of belongingness and her advice on how to learn this country. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. In thinking about the work that you do and how it's related to music, your ear I imagine, is very trained to notice things like this. It makes me think about something about your childhood. You've written about being one of the only black students in your predominantly white and Jewish junior high school. And you were of a generation of black people who were of the first few classes to integrate a school or a school district. Of that time, you wrote segregated schools taught you where you did belong. Integrated schools taught in surgical detail where you did not belong. And I imagine that being educated and growing up in that kind of environment would make you very attuned to the subtle differences in the way that people express themselves or carry themselves. And I grew up in very white educational environments. And in many ways, it made me very attuned to the way that other people talked 
But I've found it to be helpful sometimes with my work. And I wonder, how do you think your experience being a part of that early, you know, integration effort, how do you think that influenced your worldview or your work? That's another really great question. I would say, first of all, that my interest in expression, though, really began in the black community. The people around me were incredibly expressive. Mm. My Aunt Esther, who is the first person that I ever interviewed with a tape recorder when I was teaching myself how to do this, Mm. she was very, very expressive. And she'd tell a story, of course, and get up on her feet and act it out, and that's all a part of of what this is about. And, you know, the black church, all of that, all, all of that, all of that, the expression of sound mm. wasn't just in music. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just in gospel music. It's not just in jazz. Oh, it's like the call and response. It's, it's the... not just a call and response. It's, it's in how we are in the world. Mm. So, and then I think in terms of the outside part, I don't expect to belong, not even now. And I think of belongingness as something that I create for myself. Hmm. That era of us people, nice little girls like me, you know, being told to just go and be strong. I think that was about developing a worldview that is a part of this. You know, we still live in a segregated society. Society, in fact, it's more fractured than ever. For belongingness, the fact is that inevitably we're going to be crossing borders. Hmm. How to do that and still feel okay, Hmm. I think, is the strategy. When you say that, that makes me think about, I think, how I reflect on a lot of aspects of my upbringing. Like not feeling like I should expect to belong has been extremely helpful in so many ways, but also it was like a value that was taught to me when you, what you just said about, you know, young black girls like you being told, you know, be strong, you know, don't expect that things are just going to fall yeah. in front of your feet. Right. It may be what some people might think of as a hard lesson to learn as a young person, but ultimately I think that's how in a lot end, of in, in the end, works. I mean, yeah. you work, what I've seen since I walked in the front door, you're working in an extraordinarily diverse environment. Hmm. In so many ways. And you're a leader in this environment. Mm -hmm. And probably the fact that you didn't take for granted your own belongingness means that you can make an environment where lots of people can feel at home and do their best work. I'm going to take that to my therapist tomorrow, Anna. (laughs) But that is, you described something that I'm realizing now is a core value of how I think about working and inhabiting this job. I have one last question. You talked about your work as Becoming America Word by Word. I interview people. I'm a journalist. I interview people all the time. And then after, you know, we edit it, we release it. I'm not going to perform later as them. Are you sure? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Why do you say that? Did she put on a show? Yes. <laughs> as soon as you leave, I'm going to sit right back here and then I'm going to do the entire interview from your perspective and we'll spice it together. But yeah, no, I mean, in ways you've become America, certainly more so than many others. And you've interviewed hundreds, maybe thousands of people at this point, And you have transformed yourself into many of them or embodied many of them. What have you come to understand or know about America that you think other people don't? You know, probably my largest project in terms of recognition was the play about the Los Angeles riots, right? Mm-hmm, Which mm-hmm. was, I did 320 interviews, and I, I mean, it was really vast what I had to do. 
I still think it was a less, even though that was a play about violence, Mm -hmm. I think it was about a less violent time than we're in right now. Hmm. And believe it or not, a less fractured time than we are right now. It's a tougher time to learn the country. And so I think what I have to say about that in the face of what we're in now would seem almost Pollyanna-ish, if that makes sense, right? When the word got out that I was in L.A. doing these interviews, I Mm -hmm. got a phone call from two students, Korean-American graduate students, Mm -hmm. who said to me, we heard what you're doing, and we just want you to know that you're going to get it wrong. Hmm. So we would like to help you. And they translated for me. People talked to me who would have never talked to me if those two young women were not there. Hmm. I think, like, who are the ambassadors now? That's what I would say about America. I have learned that to experience this country, you always have to have a fixer who has hospitality, Hmm. who wants to share with you this house that you do not know And that, by the way, you should not walk in without their company. When I grew up, even in the black community, you know, go to see somebody, their house, come on, let me show you around my way. Yeah. Right, my way. I'm going to show you around my way. Right. So it's not just my streets. It's not just a way like a road, Mm -hmm. but like my way. My way of getting around. My way of getting around, my way of being how I am. And so that's what I've learned. And that has been a very beautiful beautiful experience for me. Like, I interviewed a rodeo cowboy who is, if you couldn't find anybody, less like me than, mm. than Brent. Took me to the hospital, took me five hours sewing up my face, and then the next day they straightened out my nose. And I had a rodeo that night, so I didn't want them to put me under anesthesia or whatever, however you say that word. Mm-hmm. And for me to be at the rodeo finals in Las Vegas with Brent and his friends... That's what I learned about this country, is to find company to be with you in its strangeness. And that is a very whole-making feeling. Because Mm. even though you don't belong, you have to find that person. And that person has to exude hospitality. But the rules of hospitality are that you have to be a good guest. I was just going to say you have to be a good guest. And there's a lot of people who don't want to be good guests. They don't. (laughs) They don't. But if you show that you're willing to be a good guest, which I think is just about suspending judgment, Hmm. walking with love, find something to love about that individual, they will keep you in their company. That's really it. I've never thought of it till this minute. It's about the company I have found to be with. Well, Anna, thank you so much for sharing with me. This has been really great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again to Anna DeVere Smith. Her new play, This Ghost of Slavery, is out now in the Atlantic. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Liam McBain. This episode was edited by Jessica Placek. Bilal Qureshi. Engineering support came from Sina Lafredo. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon.
you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.